Welcome to a podcast on fire, the Dynasty Report on Special Female Force and Skip Trace. Uh, while the female police action comedy series The Inspector Wears Skirts isn't widely or sometimes even fondly talked about, across four movies, director Welson Chin crafted some box office out of a varied comedy in terms of quality that had skit-like structure with tacked on action finale. That, that was what what those movies were, and he crafted some box office out of that. And it also had, in the case of one movie at least, Jackie Chan choreographed action. Now, Wilson, not Wilson, Wilson Chin takes over and brings back the Inspector Wear Skirts as special female force. So what kind of reboot are we talking about here? And is there even a connection to the old series, uh, or is it just a Fredbear connection there for promotion and we shouldn't even be mentioning the inspector wears skirts in connection to special female force well we'll find out also finland america hong kong and china merges in another buddy cop action comedy formula type of time this time with director Rennie harlin at the helm trying to craft duo gold putting johnny knoxville and jackie chan on the screen uh, wrecking havoc in china and uh, let's see what that is about the my name is gonna be and with me during this Dynasty Report is Paul Fox of the East Screen West Screen podcast. So say hello, buddy. Hello, hello, hello. How's it going? Been a while since we did this particular thing, this Dynasty Report sub series, um, and uh, it's only you and I this time. And uh, and and also, and I'll explain why. But also, despite you being back in the US, in Florida, and all of that, we're carrying on the tradition of the Dynasty Report, where new or newish movies are discussed in order for me to gain some possible interest in uh, what is worthwhile coming out of Hong Kong and China and uh, sometimes uh, movies discussed were watched at one of Paul's uh, favorite cinemas The Dynasty and uh, hopefully hopefully that is still alive and uh, thriving and not ready for a big old knockdown anytime soon but uh, yeah, as far as you know it's still, uh, still standing as far as I know it's still there and uh, you know if they ever do decide to close it I hope I can make a special trip back to see whatever the last film they show there happens to be. I thought we were gonna say I'm gonna bring back like uh, some boards or some bricks from from the uh, from the demolition, <laughs> just as a souvenir. <laughs> well, you know, the, with the with the, with the, with the way that things go in Hong Kong, I don't I don't think they necessarily tear it down that building. Um, they'd probably just go in and refurbish it and you know turn it into like a a learning center or a pharmacy or something. Well, we'll take a break regardless. Like bring your own power to So that's it. We're also not a trio this time around. As I mentioned, David Lamb usually is here to bring his informed perspective, but he and his wife just had a baby. So he's tending to life as he should. So a heartfelt congratulations to the doctor. And he has time to show of his wonderful child on social media, of course, but he's being a good father and prioritizing as he should. So good old congrats to uh, Dr. David Lamb. Yes, congratulations, uh, Daddy David. I know you're going to have your hands full and be busy, and it'll all pay off in the long run, trust me. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, before... Paul uh, educates me on special female force, and I chime in and uh, moderate the discussion on and what have you. We're going to do some quick contact information at this is podcast on fire and our sub series, the Dynasty Report, uh, and uh, we are available 
on podcastnofai.com where we have plenty of shows uh, connected to the network including this one on Hong Kong cinema new and old we talk about Japanese cinema Korean cinema we do commentaries every now and again we do sh- shows on specific directors sleazy cinema ninja cinema we got it all hopefully anyway and we also do bonus episodes every now and again and uh, Maybe this is something I'll cut, but one of the latest ideas at the time of recording for a bonus episode is just because we've finished the Alan Tam crapping hour, we're going to still do an additional one that that's not going to add to the tally. I don't know if you, Paul, know what the tally is yet, but regardless, we're going to do a bonus episode of Alan Tam's newest movie, the widely disliked Fooling Around in Jianghu. Just because, because we haven't looked, we never looked at a new Alan Tam movie in that coverage. So we thought, like, well, it's out there. So what if we don't like it? It's it'll be cool for a bonus episode. And I remember your view. You weren't wild about it, but I don't know if it, if it was if it was pure like pulse elevating hatred towards it or anything. Yeah, it was a. Uh, we basically came out of the theater kind of shaking our head, going, "What did we just watch?" Uh, that was sort of the general consensus, and it. Unfortunately, it leaves a very impressionable mark for me because it was the last Hong Kong film I got a chance to see before relocating back to the States. So, Alan Tam, you are forever, your Team Tamness is, or, or not Team Tamness, is going to be burdened into my memory forever just for being that film. I crap on you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but that's what we're going to do in the future at the time we're recording for a bonus episode. Uh, but um, we also have an email, so let us know if you have any questions or feedback on uh, any movie we've covered or the movies we covered this episode. Podcast on fire at googlemail.com. Join us over on social media. We have handy buttons at the top of our website. First, lead into our Facebook page. And once you're there, look up, um, well, leave a like in support. We would love to see uh, see some additional likes. Uh, even though we don't thrive on it but it will be nice to have a like in support every now and again but my point is you can also look up our discussion group that's called podcast on fire network where we post most of the show updates and discuss a variety of things uh, in a well-behaved manner and you can also click our twitter button to lead that will lead you to our twitter feed the itunes button if you want to subscribe to our feed over there and uh, once you're there, leave a star rating uh, if you have an opinion on the show, and even a small written comment if you have the time. And uh, finally, click the Stitcher radio button if you want to stream any show from the network. Uh, the button will lead you to their website presence, but they also have handy applications available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. So you can uh, stream us on the go. I review a variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies, mostly focused on... Uh, 70s and 80s uh, Taiwanese movies, uh, female revenge movies, special effects movies for kids, even though they contain sometimes a lot of violence. And also review category free movies, uh, ninja movies, or these cut and paste uh, uh, movies from IFT and Filmark and Godfrey Ho and what have you over at SoGoodReviews.com. And I video review every now and again on SleazyKVideo.com. And my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. And Paul, I mentioned East Screen, West Screen, the podcast that uh, usually reviews new movies, including whenever Alan Tam brings out a new movie or whenever Jackie Chan brings out a new movie. So uh, what is that uh, podcast called and uh, where are you at, sir? Yes, it is East Screen, West Screen, and you can find us over on our website that is congcast.com, K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. Excellent. So you're praying for like uh, U.S. companies like Wellgo to get on the Alan Tam train to pick out the newest one, so you can go go and see Alan Tam uh, around your haunts. Really, uh, anything uh, at this <laughs> point, I'll take anything because uh, on the last episode I was that we were going to record, I was supposed to try and get out to see a Korean film called Fabricated City that 
fan, you know, the, our, the, the Fandango movie app was saying is opening next week. But I've come to the conclusion that Florida does not like Asian cinema. Well, Miami seems to, but uh, you're not necessarily near Miami. Yeah, I mean, there's one cinema down in Miami that, for example, got Railroad Tigers, did not get uh, Kung Fu Yoga, so the last two Jackie Chan films. But it's like a 90-minute drive for me to go down there, so that's a three-hour commitment just in terms of driving. And you tack on the two hours of a, watching a movie, and it's a five-hour thing. And it's, it's very hard for me right now to sort of break away for that much time to go down and watch a movie as much as I want to. And I know that a lot of fans are probably out there saying, Hey, take away his movie nerd card. You know, that's that. that I'd hey, fam, do that, hey, fans, you know. he's a family man. He's a father. For heaven's <laughs> sake, so shut up. Well, well, thankfully, Welgo has a good relationship with Netflix. So at least um, you're going to get to see uh, most of the stuff that you desire on there, whether, whether Jackie Chan or not. So. To be fair, I mean, a lot of stuff has been coming out uh, fairly rapidly, um, which is, you know, always always a good thing for those of us who can't get out to the cinema. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Not uh, the well-going or present uh, in Europe, and certainly not Sweden. So our, uh, you know, we get select well-go titles, but they're very, very select. I mean, we got uh, Kung Fu Jungle, for instance, that's still on Swedish Netflix, but uh, whether well-go have it in Europe or not, I'm not sure, but um, it's there. And I have it on my list to watch sometime. Because that's one of the movies from the Dynasty Report that sounded appealing to me. So uh, that's it. It works. It works. Uh, not for every movie, but uh, every now and again. In the meantime, though, uh, before we review uh, Paul uh, talks of special female force, we're going to take a short promotional break. So listen to this uh, little tidbit, tidbit, commercial tidbit from one of our friends in the podcasting community. And we'll be right back. Hey, everyone. You are listening to the podcast on Fire Network. My name is Bird. And I'm Matt. We are the Kaiju Transmissions Podcast, so if you like giant monsters, Godzilla, Gamera, Ultraman, uh, King Kong, you like Japanese sci-fi, we are the place to be. And you can check us out online in several places. Isn't that right, Matt? Yeah, check us out on Twitter. Uh, Our handle is KT underscore podcast, or visit us on Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions Podcast. And you can also email us at kaijutransmissionspodcast at gmail.com. So if you like your monsters gigantic, angry, and rubbery, check us out. And welcome back in the first review of this uh, Dynasty Report uh, featuring uh, Paul Fox and myself. Uh, it's Special Female Force from 2016, and uh, we'll find out shortly if it has any connection to the Inspector Wear Skirts series. And if anyone saw any movie out of that series, it's probably the first one, since it had the most high-profile cast. Uh, everyone from Cara Hoy, Cynthia Rothrock. I think a couple of other Westerners were in there as well, and I think it had Jackie Chan choreographed action, so that's probably the movie that people uh, people remember from that series. Uh, Sibel Hu, I think, as well. But uh, regardless, uh, Paul is here to tell us uh, soon enough if it has any valid connection or not. But first of all, is there a little plot attached to this movie, Paul? Sure. So this is a sort of a an homage to or a remake of those kinds of Girls With Guns films that you mentioned, more specifically, it is in the vein or attempting to be in the vein of the Inspector Wears Skirts series to the point where it's basically copying <laughs> quite okay. a bit uh, uh, from that series. Um, and the story is thus, there's a group called the Special Female Force. They're an elite female police force. And during an operation where they're trying to capture this bad guy called uh, the president, he 
turns the tables on them basically and the, the entire team except for Madame Fong who's played by Steffi Tang uh, gets eliminated okay jump to nine years later the now older Madame Fong who is being portrayed by the actress uh, Jade Lung Lung Chang she is trying to start the team up again and so to do so she's bringing a bunch of police young female police cadets to train and they breaks them into four teams a b c and d and the top team will get to become the new special female force and so what you end up having is much of the focus for our protagonists they end up on team b and this includes sort of the main cast of girls and they get into a rivalry with the top team which of course is team a right so it's a against d b and c are kind of there but they're pretty much you know, uh, just extras in the background for most scenes. And so this rivalry plays out. And of course, as with the earlier films in the Inspectors Wear Skirts series, they go through a bunch of, you know, training events and humor ensues, girl bonding. And ultimately, there is a serious case that arises. And how do the girls handle the serious case? And how does everything get resolved? Well, if you've seen those kinds of films, you can kind of expect you know, what comes in, in this film. So no real surprises, uh, I will say that. But we'll get into some more discussion of that in a bit. In in other words, uh, the connection is pretty uh, pretty valid, I suppose. I don't think Jade Lung ever appeared in these movies, but certainly that that's, uh, to me, a decently iconic phase out of the 90s canon of action heroines in, uh, in movies, whether, well, probably Black Cat is her more internationally known showcase but i always loved the movie fox hunter with jay lung and jordan chan surprisingly solid as a drama and excellent stephen tong action so if you've never seen fox hunter either you paul or anyone else try and look it up because it is a hidden gem of the mid-90s Hong Kong action cinema, and certainly Enemy Shadow, I believe, from the same year as the solid Jade Lung movie. Black Cat is interesting. It was made by DMB, both one and two. DMB were, just like Cinema City at that time, a little bit too ambitious, meaning that they were brave, but they put everything in the hat and was hoping for box office gold. But key productions sunk each respective company when they really went for it. In the case of Cinema City, Undeclared War was... Um, instrumental in um, the closing of Cinema City. Uh, Ringo Lam's big internationally flavored movie did not work out. In the case of DMB, Black Cat 2, I think, was the movie that um, really uh, sealed the deal on um, on the closing of the company, which is a shame because Black Cat 2 is actually pretty damn good. Um, shot in English, sing sound. Shot in Dolby, surround as well. And I think they kept her... Pretty much dialogue-less, but I think whenever she did speak English, it was all pretty good. She acts against Robin Hsu, and I really did like Black Cat 2. It's a good, kick-ass time, but um, it's never been seen on its own terms, Paul. Uh, It's mostly been available Chinese dubbed, right? So, and for a sing-sound movie in English, with some pretty solid English, uh, English language acting, I have to say. It's a shame that that never was seen on its own uh, terms, and certainly not its on its own terms in terms of sound. Um, the original Dolby track is something that's not available right now to us, but uh, pr- pretty much a shame. But uh, uh, nice to hear that Jade Long is uh, still being considered for movies, man, because I don't think she is, either by her own choice, acting that uh, 
frequently anymore. I, I, I see her credits have picked up ever so slightly since 2012, but then there was a gap again up until last year. Apparently in Line Walker as well. Do you remember if she had a an at all a prominent role or? Uh, it was a small role. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't super significant in the t- terms of the main cast. Yeah. Uh, let's read it back a bit before we go into that movie. Uh, were you a fan of that original series? If you saw any of the four movies that Inspector Westgott's um, uh, became. Yeah, I was, and uh, I remember because I, I came into the series. I had the time that I started really watching Hong Kong films in the cinema. I saw the second film first. You know, it was very interesting because I'd never seen anything like it. You know, that's one of the great things about coming into Hong Kong cinema during that time period because you're seeing all this stuff that's never you've never really seen anywhere. I mean, the closest thing that we would equate it to stateside is the Police Academy films, right? But this is very specifically relevant to a female police force and um, all the cultural humor that that ensues. And you've got a really great cast back then, too. I was underwhelmed by the first one really i mean it's it's good it's fun the, the cost is fun to watch and it's got some cool action i remember a training sequence involving fire seemed awfully real for for people involved you know uh, the actors and actresses to run away from that uh, fire but if you look back on two paul it might have been your first but two part two is this almost ultimate example of unplotted make it up as you go along hong kong movie and then tack on an action plot at the end because there's just skits galore in that one and i didn't think it worked very well amy yip is in it so obviously they're gonna have tons of jokes about uh, her her set of boobs and all of that so i think she has she doesn't have a bulletproof vest on at the end, but she has a you know steel plates over her boobs, so that's why she doesn't get shot at the end. You know, inspired stuff like that. But and I remember I didn't really like the third one either, which isn't called that even. It's a raid on Royal Casino Marine. Um, um, but but four was fun, actually very fun. Uh, Cynthia Khan was in it. I thought it was more fun because the the action was a bit more creative since they they used a lot of like high tech gadgets to populate that story. And I remember it sort of was fun to see um, Paul Fonerov, um, you know, writer and critic, uh, in a fairly significant role as mm. a as a Western uh, uh, Western police officer. So, so out of those four, that are not classics in my mind, but they're sort of fun to watch. Like, if watch one and four and see what you think after that. If you want to pursue the other uh, the other parts after that, then um, then by all means do so. Uh, so, so yeah, let's uh, let's move on to some quick uh, quick opinions. I guess uh, is it is it anything uh, in terms of an update? Uh, any significant uh, qualities within it? Well, it, as I said, this is really trying to be an update, but they kind of do a color by numbers in terms of copying elements from. Um, I, w- I really want to say the first and second film in the series more than anything else. Initially, it's it's pretty violent and dark. When when we're first shown this first team led by Steffi Tang, and when, when things start to go south um, and the girls start to get picked off, it, it's pretty bloody. I would say there's a there's an, a young assassin who uses a knife and he likes to cut up, you know, some of the girls. And I was surprised by some of that. I wasn't, you know, I was kind of expecting this to be more along the sort of silly comedy lines than anything else. So that might take viewers aback a little bit. I mean, it's nothing. You know, it's not anything heavy compared to the heaviest of Hong Kong cinema out there. 
that it, it didn't get garner a category three rating or anything like that. But it was just surprising the amount of blood um, and the level of violence that was going in right in that first segment. Once it gets beyond that, and we jump ahead nine years, then it starts to get into the typical expected, expected gags. And I think for, for myself, I know most of the girls here. There was one girl uh, named Catherine Lee, who I think is from an actress from Malaysia. And this has a strong Malaysia tie to it. Uh, the girls spend a significant amount of time in Malaysia on an operation at a, at a certain point. So it's kind of a co-production in those terms. But the main girls you have here, uh, Eliza Sam, Sam Lai Hung, who plays kind of the lead girl, Fa, and she has a backstory that's revealed. They try and make it a bit of a twist, but it's not really a twist. You kind of expect it to come out at some point. And she is an actress who I know primarily from TVB dramas. And that kind of shows here. She's got a couple screen credits under her belt, uh, cameos, mostly in TVB you know, productions, some of the New Year's productions and things. And I don't know if she's quite ready for the big screen. I mean, she handles some of her scenes okay, but some of the more heavy stuff just comes across as television-esque, I'll say. You have uh, Joyce Cheng, okay, Cheng Yanyi, the daughter of Lydia Shum and Adam, Adam Cheng, who fans of longtime cinema should recognize. You know, she's she pops up now and again. And she is really embracing the Sandra M role. Oh, here. They're, they're going for they're going for the types. I see what you yeah. mean. Because, uh, you know, back then it was it wasn't Sandra M, the accomplished thespian they were asking for in those movies. It was Sandra Um, let's make fun of the fact that no one thinks you're attractive, Sandra Um. Here's money. Yeah. And it was always like so unfair because I never thought she was an ugly woman at all. Uh, so uh, yeah, I get it. Because Joyce has a pretty good range. Unfortunately she's put on some weight um in over the past couple years. And so they're picking her out more and more for this kind of role, filling sort of the old Sandrum role. She's getting work, so that's fine. And I know that, you know, her mother was all about that, right? Her mother didn't mind being the the, the fat girl, being used in, in that role because she got work and she became famous and loved for doing that. So that this is not to discount Joyce at all, but it is kind, you know, because they're pigeonholing her so much and rather than doing something different with that, it... it you know, it's kind of disappointing because there's there's opportunities for them to stretch rather than simply doing a carbon copy. Um, but she, you know, she's that character pretty much. You know, she's the butt of a lot of the jokes. Where, where do you think that come from? Is that still a, a commercial decision or be a pretty much an empty-headed commercial decision to just cast types and be a bit shallow like that? Too? It is. It is because. Uh, as we go further down the list, you have uh, actress uh, Anita Choi, Choi Pei-ga, uh, Choi Pei-ka, excuse me, who was um, cast in the Amy Yip role. <laughs> no, I was about to ask, like, there's probably not an Amy Yip in this movie, and lo and behold. No, it's her. She's the buxom one. She was in, I want to say, what was she in last year? Well, uh, Robbery from Vegas to Macau yeah. Free and SDU, Sex Duties Unit. <laughs> By the way, she played fake boobs girl in SDU. So there there you are. She's slowly carving out a role for herself, kind of fulfilling the Amy Yip role. And that's not to say she doesn't have, you know, talent. You know, she does have a, have a screen presence beyond, you know, the, the size of her chest, which is good. But unfortunately, they don't let her stretch all that much they t she has a scene where they throw her in the water she has to swim back to shore and she wanders around in wet clothes for you know minutes on end 
because that's what you do with the big buxom girl, right? And so, yeah, she kind of takes up that role. There is um, a new actress. Uh, her name is escaping me as I look on the list now. But she basically plays the martial arts expert for the group. She's, you know, a bit of a tomboy, and they refer to her as a TB throughout. But, you know, she's the best fighter of the group. So, that you know, they had the, the expert fighter. I think it was the Karahoy character, right? Who was the expert fighter in the old series? And then you've got, uh, let's see, uh, Jack, uh, uh, not Jenna. Yeah, Jenna Ho is here, and Catherine Lee, as I said, as the sort of Malaysian actress, I guess, to get some co production and some Malaysian funding. And for the most part, all of these girls look great. They look like models or pseudo models, as we've discussed before. They don't really look like police officers, (laughs) you know, Um, and, and, you know, again, that's part of the joke. You could maybe go back and say that of the girls in the old series, but really here, these girls look way too much like models. Like they've never, you know, they've, they've never run a lap in their life. They, they're not that toned. And so the problem starts to coalesce when they start doing some of the action sequences and you have the action here which consists of some martial arts action, some hand-to-hand, a bit of knife fighting, and a lot of gunplay being handled by um, the Ching Karlock action team. I guess they do most of the heavy lifting. I don't know. I don't think it's Ching Karlock himself, even though he has a cameo here. Uh, maybe it was. I don't know. But, it, you know, when you look at some of the stuff he does on bigger productions, like what did, I think he did Cold War II last year and some of the other stuff that he does where, they've, where they're throwing money at him, I mean, he's really on his game. You know, he knows what he's doing because he's, you know, or the team is working here with girls who are not well trained in martial artists uh, as martial artists or who don't have a lot of perhaps action or stunt training. How do they compensate for this, Ken? What would be your guess? Well, I would guess stunt doubling of varying quality, but I'm also guessing that they might disguise it with uh, um, shoddy camera work. Yeah, it's lots and lots of shaking game. The stunt doubling is a good guess. If you were throwing these girls in, you know, S standard SDU police uniforms where they were covered up, you know, most of them were covered up and you just had to worry about blocking some blocking shots of their face, right? Mm-hmm. But no, because they're running around in tank tops with their <laughs> midriffs showing and shooting guns, you can't really hide them with a stunt double, right? Wow. You can't you can't you can't do that too easily. Back in the day, they did, man. Like they didn't care if they matched hair color or gender. If you look at writing wrongs, there's a scene with Cynthia Rothrock where she does a spinning kick, and they cut to a Yumbu in a dress. Yeah. And it's super obvious, even you know back then, because the shot lingers ever so slightly too long. So uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I guess you know in this age of the digital and the HD, they just don't even want to bother um so it's lots and lots of shaky cam and it just doesn't look good there are a couple action pieces that are that are okay but but and it's not a discredit against the girls again the girls are not stunt people they're not you know artists they're for the most part there because they look good and that's fine but it's really a shame that to compensate for that they just take the camera and star trek the heck out of it because it just doesn't look all that great Hey, hey, let me ask you something. We, we've had this theory, um, not you and I necessarily, but uh, I've had discussions with other people. Where did we start to go wrong in terms of um, not shooting action 
a bit more stable. And we always saw the point towards the fact that was, even though it was a good effort, saving Private Ryan, the leap off point to people taking that inspiration in a wrong way and simply not doing shaky for the right reasons. And sometimes people say, well, Bourne, it started with Bourne, one of the Bourne movies. And I don't know because I've never seen them. Do you have a take on that when that, when that started to run rampant, if there was a key point where someone made a wrong choice and started to shake way too much? I guess it depends on who you ask. For people in my generation and my dad's generation, I mean, we look to Star Trek. You know, anytime the anytime the Enterprise would get hit with enemy fire <laughs> and the actors needed to jostle around or they need, you know, they would just say, okay, everybody jerk around and they would shake the camera at the same time for added effect. But they weren't fighting. They weren't fighting that way though. They were just, they, they weren't fighting. Right. Um, they, and then you get into perhaps saving private Ryan. But for me, that was more of them trying to present a more of a documentary style camera view. Yeah. Like a war documentarian. Then really just trying to compensate for the action to make it look because if you shoot action that's not well choreographed or not being done by a Samo or a Jackie who have the experience to know how to make it look good with a still shot or a tracking shot, you know, like the old Shaw Brothers movies where they did really long takes. What do you do then? The only thing you can do is shake the heck out of that camera. And that disjoints your audience so much that they think something really exciting is going on, but it's really just making them dizzy. Um, at least that's the effect that it has. Yeah, on I mean, I mean, they also, I think sometimes they argue that that puts you in the fight just because that would almost be your your perspective on the fight because you're moving around and all of that. And that reasoning doesn't work. Going back to the Private Ryan example, yes. In that, in that, that case, that, yeah. That, that was the intent, I think, of, of Spielberg. You know, he wanted you to feel like you were there on the beach. Exactly. And it worked. And, but I came out of that theater saying, I never want to watch that movie again. Because, you know, it was like, what, what do they want? Do they want the audience to really feel post-traumatic stress coming out of watching a movie? I certainly don't want that kind of an effect. It was a very effective technique and, and kudos to them for being able to do it. But it also has the impact of me saying, I don't want to watch that movie again um, because of that. So I, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm in a fight. If I wanted to feel like I'm in a fight, you know, I'd go sign up for a competition and get in the ring. <laughs> you know, when I'm watching a movie, I want to be able to, I, I want to have clarity yeah. of line, clarity of action. And, you know, but I understand too that with the younger generations, and it's my generation's fault because we were the MTV generation. And MTV gave us these long music videos from people like Michael Jackson and others where it was edit, 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 cut, 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 and our attention span has gotten diminished, right? And so the attention span of, all, of people today in terms of entertainment is that they need a lot more cuts. So when I would show a Shaw Brothers movie to some of my students, they'd say it was boring. And it's not that it's boring, it's that they're just so used to their, you know, something flashing, something changing, an edit point every few seconds, that when you see a long take, which isn't really a long take, maybe 15 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds of an action scene, to them, it just seems slow and monotonous. So that's part of it, I think. But yeah, everybody points to Bourne, because I think Bourne really brought it into fashion with hand-to-hand. And so I think that's why that becomes sort of the go-to example um, that a lot of people will use for more modern cinema. And and, and also, the the director for one or two of them, Paul Greengrass, 
that's his style anyway. So it's yeah. almost like, whoa, you got to have my style in the action too. It was, uh, I've only seen one Paul Greengrass movie other than that, and that was his um, uh, 9-11 movie, the one that set on the plane that crashed at the Pentagon. Um, and and that was but and that wasn't bad for that movie that dramatic movie uh, not at all but it seems like he I'm sticking to that style <laughs> even when I make Bourne I remember uh, that you know even older films I want to say it was the first Lethal Weapon that comes to mind I remember watching that in the cinema and there's a fight scene at the end I think is that I think that's the one with Gary Busey Mel Gibson and Gary Busey are going at it and it's at night. And they're like fighting on top of the hoods of the car. Maybe it was one of the other ones. I, you know, it's been so long since I've seen it. And it's so dark. Can't see anything. The action's not clear. And that's not what I want to see. Like I said, I want to see, you know, I want to have a clarity of action, a clarity of position, a, a clarity of line and, and all that stuff. So that I, as a viewer, get a sense of the process. Not that I feel disjointed and disoriented and, and you know, dizzy. And and that's it's not just for hand fights. I mean... Or, or, or martial arts films or, or gunplay. I mean, I felt that way with Cloverfield, too. And Cloverfield, because of the digital aspect of it, had the effect that when I watched it with a friend, he actually had to leave because he felt so nauseous because of the way that they were using the camera work there. So I know people are trying to experiment and, and try and get a style of their own, but, you know, you got to think of the audience too. Yeah, and and where it's applicable and where it's not. Uh, I mean, the the final example I'm going to bring up. I've never, I haven't seen the movie, but uh, someone posted a clip of the third Taken movie. I saw the first one. That that was good enough for me. I didn't need any more takings. But yeah. they, they they showed a clip of uh, the third one where Liam Neeson jumps over a fence which is a five-second event. He runs up some crates, jumps over a fence. There were about 15 edits in that single event. And it wasn't like Jackie Chan style where they show the stunt all over again. No, all the going up, up, up and over. That was all chop, 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 chop. And I was like, we've gotten to this point, haven't we? This is unbelievable for a mundane event that they sort of need to jazz it up to keep us interested or something like that. Just for that, not for a fight scene, but for Liam Neeson and him himself and um, not a stunt double, jumping over a fence that's sort of sealed the deal in terms of well that's not a movie i want to experience if that is what i'm going to have to go through for like liam neeson answering a phone 50 edits no way keep that away from me so you know when you look at the choreography in special female force can you see that the action team has have prepared quality choreography but it's not shot well or um or they aren't able to provide quality choreography working with the performers that they are? Uh, it's really hard to say. I mean, I think that the some of the action pieces they have put in there that they have in mind are fine, but again, they have to compensate for the fact that these are girls who typically, this is not something that they necessarily do on a daily basis, with the exception of uh, the, the one girl who's the martial artist. Did Jade do any, any action, by the way? Jade Long? Not really. Uh, she's... Because she's there as the madam, so she has a, a little bit at, in the end, and in the earlier scene, she's played by Steffi. You know, that character is played by Steffi, so a little bit of gunplay uh, for the most part. Again, that tends to be uh, a smaller part of this, because much of the film is the girls bonding, um, having some having some comedy. You know, one of the one of the more memorable scenes for me from. The Inspector series, of course, is when 
the girls have to get on the mat and do some taekwondo training, some martial arts training. You know, they go through a thing like that here. It goes it goes in a very similar expected route um, as as you see the scene unfold. It's very predictable. There's some film references too. So as I said, Chin Carlock and Jerry Lamb show up at a certain point, and there's you know they play a little bit of the Young and Dangerous music, you know, throw in a small gag. The, the irony is is that I think that for a lot of the fans of these girls, these you know people like um, Jenna Ho and others, they may not have seen the Young and Dangerous films, you know, so this, that, that might not necessarily be for them. Twenty-year-old references, man. <laughs> I think Ross, over on his review, kind of puts it best. In a year where you would have more of this kind of film, this would be a bad film. But given that nobody's done or tried to do this kind of film in such a long time, the nostalgia for it for fans of the old films kind of makes it passable, kind of makes it okay. It's still laughable. I mean, one of my biggest problems with the film is that so much of the film, the girls are basically going around in nothing, right? I mean, uh, they're running around in gun with guns, but they're in slips and wearing high heels. And, you know, even in the final sequences when they're going to face down the antagonist and his team, they've got these, you know, mini tank tops on. One of the, one of the actresses wears a tank top that it's, you know how you have some dresses where the tank top has a shoulder strap on both sides but this one has just a shoulder strap on one side. It's more like a bikini than anything else. You think, all right, you're getting ready to go and take this guy down. You're getting ready to, to do battle, and this is what you wear. Sure, they, they're go again, they're going for the sex appeal on screen, but I have to suspend my disbelief in thinking that this is what any sensible police officer would want to wear uh, in the field on, on an op. And that's the thing is that these girls are coming to the program they're already established police officers, right? You have to, you know, that's how you get into the program. Now, they make make light that, like, one of the characters, you know, she's in charge of traffic or something, right? So it's not like they're all police story three super detectives or something. But the idea is that they should have had some training. They should have some skills already just going through basic training. And they don't really play off to that effect, I would say. It is shot in studio sound, and that doesn't really help. Um, so all of the girls are dubbed, even though them do their own dubbing in studio. And it doesn't help because they're, what they're trying to do is build chemistry um, with the girls. I'm on record as being a staunch advocate for sync sound rather than uh, can sound. Um, but it is what it is. So uh, there you have that. As structurally, is it merely loosely sort of related skits and then the tacked on? action or do they try and have a through line character wise for these like journeys if you will or, or is it akin to Inspector West Guards 2 that is merely that skit 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 pew 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 the end it's, n it's not as frenetic and, and skit heavy as the Inspector West Guards 2 um, because here it's more it starts out with the girls in the school trying to bond there are things that get in the way they're trying to be better than team a and you know the team a rivalry is one that is very tip very sort of typical for this kind of thing when you get girls on one team and girls on another team and them trying to one-up each other and you know being underhanded about it it's got some really bad editing in places the continuity is not always great um i sent kenneth a shot earlier 
where we you can very clearly see an extra in one scene um, who's playing a role as a villain. And in the same scene, just a couple of shots later, you see that same extra just walking through the general public shot, uh, a shot of people like in the background. And you see him there. It's the same guy. He's a huge guy. Same hairstyle. You can't miss him. He's just got a different colored shirt on. He's even <laughs> carrying the same bag. And it's just like, really, guys, come on. I mean, what, what did you outsource this to a film school? I mean, even film school students would know better than this. Um, so in some aspects, it does get a bit lazy on some of the some of the technical side. And this is the thing with Wilson Chin. And and here is where I almost were, were, were delighted when you told me it's directed by Wilson Chin. Whoa, he's back! No, that's Wilson Chin. <laughs> not not Wilson. This is our buddy Wilson, who uh, has t- about ten films under his credit. Most recently, Kidnapped, Ding Ding Dawn from last year, which just a silly comedy with uh, Alex Funk. Okay, you know it's it's it if you like that kind of thing. But his sort of call to fame here is his attempt at creating almost category three films. Um, and this is what kind of what's made him famous. So he's done this in the Lan Kwai Fong series, Lan Kwai Fong, Lan Kwai Fong 2, and Lan Kwai Fong 3, uh, each shot successfully over the course of um, the early 2010s. Um, so Lan Kwai Fong landed in 2011, part two in 2012, and part three in 2013. So these are not Category 3 films, but he attempts to push the envelope as much as possible within the Category 2B rating. And so these are all what I like to call sexy time films, young people who have nothing better to do than go clubbing and and hang out and have sex with each other. With their undergarments on, which, which is how no, you always... No, not, no, not even? No. Okay. Um, many of these scenes, the undergarments come off, but he uses object placement or arm <laughs> placement to block. So what you get on screen is a sexual act occurring, but you don't see any naughty bits, basically. And so this, somehow the sensors look at this and go, yeah, okay, we are not seeing, you know, what, areola or pubic hair or these kinds of things. And so it's fine for a 2B rating. And the the crowds the kids ate it up Uh, they really went out for this and these films were pretty successful so this is what he you know this this is what he kind of gets known for um this and the occasional comedy like he did black comedy with chapman toe in 2014 and then he did sort of a big uh, cross uh, straight comedy with one night in taipei a couple years back but this is the thing. This is the thing I would want to say to Wilson Chin. I, fine, you've done these sexy time films and you've gotten successful doing it. You've made known celebrities of people like Jenna Ho and others who are don't want to reveal themselves but can get known for doing this kind of role. And so it's great for them, you know, because it, you know, it keeps them from getting too much criticism in the sort of paparazzi and newsprint spotlight. And that's all fine. But I would say, as a director, you would never do shaky cam in those sexy time scenes, right? Because <laughs> that would ruin your thing, right? Yep. So don't do shaky cam. If you can't shoot the action well, if you can't afford to get the stunt team to do it the best that they can do it, if you're going to cheap out, don't do shaky cam in action. You know, stick to comedy, stick to stick to that stuff. Could you imagine a, a sexy time 
sequence where they're just shaking the camera and shaking the camera. It's like, you're there. You're in the bed. You know, <laughs> It's just like the real thing. Only that's not right. So, yeah, I, I totally get it because I can just imagine he's he's shooting these scenes in, you know, in slow motion and da 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 dun dun, dun. You know, it's, uh, it's slow and passionate. So you, you wouldn't do that then. <laughs> Is there any sex in shot that way other than for comedy? I don't know. I mean, I mean, the, the only thing I can think of it is not even uh, shaky cam. It's it's under cranking. It's the scene in Clockwork Orange. You know, so yeah, yeah. I, I this is going to be a film that I can't really recommend you go out and get a Blu-ray of. I'd say if you're nostalgic for those old old films, this will this will meet that need for nostalgia a little bit. You know, and you might can grab the DVD or wait for a sale or wait till somebody you know. Um, yes, it sends you a coupon or something. I don't know, but it, yeah, it's unfortunately just not great. Um, and especially if you're not a fan of this genre, this is probably not something that's gonna uh, gonna work for you at all. Apparently, he got onto a mermaid in some shape or form. He's uh, credited as executive director, whatever that means. If he uh, co-directed a little chunk of it or not, but um, obviously, Stephen is the sole credited director, but. Uh, Executive director must mean something other than T boy, you know. So who knows? But uh, but yeah, it's certainly not um, uh, an appealing thought going into this genre again because it doesn't sound like it provides a fun update necessarily. Um, especially since I wasn't a big fan of the Inspector West Guard series, I can watch it, but it's not my go-to thing for um, girls with guns nostalgia. I turn to you know, random Moon Lee movies for that, random Yukari Oshima movies for that, and uh, Inspector Worst Girls never really fell into that camp. Other than the first, I suppose, I'm, I'm, I've forgotten a lot, but obviously when you have Kara Hoy and Cynthia Rothrock and Jackie Chan action on it, there, there's bound to be the most quality in that series probably resides, action-wise anyway, within the first movie, yeah. I, I just want to make a quick mention. Uh, the girl, the actress who plays the martial artist role in the film is uh, Mandy Ho, Hope Weeman. And uh, she's pretty new on the scene. She's only got a couple credits uh, on her under her belt. This is the only film I've seen her in so far. She's apparently got something list credited as the real Iron Monkey from 2014, which stars Chen Quan Tai. Uh, one of the production companies was My Way, and I'm not surprised because they they, they try to churn out these um, low budget but uh, throwback to old school sensibilities type of movies. They've done so for ages, and occasionally they strike gold, man. I mean, did did you ever see the Samuel movie they produced, Kung Fu Chefs? Ah, uh, yes, yeah, Kung Fu Chef. I really liked that. It also also yeah. had some quality action, and it was genuinely quite entertaining. So that that team uh, behind my way, they occasionally um, get it right. So uh, don't dismiss them for. Don't mean to sound like a dis- no, 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 dismissing no, them. I no, just no, I'm talking to the never people. Never saw that. <laughs> never saw that film. I I don't even know if it's available because um, I don't remember it coming out in Hong Kong. And that's the thing with some of these films, you never really know. Have they been released? Are they still being held on the shelf somewhere? Because they may have shown one during film art and then it's just getting capped, you know, and it might get released a couple of years later. There's a lot of ambiguity about some of the films, some of these smaller films out there these days. Yes, yes, certainly. And uh, it's a shame because um, the DVD market isn't as expensive as it used to be where most movies go a release and now in Hong Kong it's very, very it's more restrictive than it used to be certainly um, so that's a shame and as for availability for special female force it is available now on VCD DVD and Blu-ray in Hong Kong still doing VCD there it's still a market for the cheap option 
but uh, surely they are a tiny bit better quality at least for new movies maybe but uh, but yeah you have all three options available to you i believe that's the only one of maybe two or three markets that still hold on to vcd and probably all those markets are in asia yeah yeah and i've I think we may have discussed it here before. I've talked with a couple of people about why is VCD still sticking around? In part, it's just because of the cost, um, because there are still people who are part of the lower class who want to see these films and who just, you know, it's the, for them, it's the cheapest route to go. Um, and so they still have VCD player. I don't even think my computer can play VCDs anymore. You, you, I've got to actually pull the MPEG file off the disk to get it to run through a special software player but time was you you could stick it into the computer and the computer would recognize it and do sort of an autoplay thing that's kind of functionality is just not there for modern uh computers anymore as far as i know yeah certainly not uh, given with uh, dvd and blu-ray players i i have a I have a fancy like region free blu-ray player i'm not sure it does vcds or mpeg but uh, it might too i don't know i haven't put one in for Ages, but uh, still, one of some of my favorite movies are not gonna get any better version than the VCD version. Sometimes it is that way, especially with older Hong Kong movies, of course. Uh, yes, uh, but uh, that's uh, that's that. But uh, yes, uh, that you, you'd recommend a VCD or DVD purchase rather than the big high def version. I, I gather. Yeah, I I don't think there's anything here in terms of the visuals, and I I think they on occasion do the thing that really gets under your skin, Kenneth, with the uh, CG blood at times. Not all of it. I mean, as I said, the, there's some some sequences in the beginning where there's definitely some prosthetic blood being used. But some of the gunshot wounds do look a bit CGI'd up. So Right on. Well, we'll take a musical break, and after that we'll talk of... Uh, you can't say latest, because when you say, like, 10 minutes later, Jackie Chan has released about two more movies. He's always got some, a lot on his plate, but it's one of his three or four 2016 movies, maybe. And it's uh, Skip Trace, uh, co-starring uh, Johnny Knoxville and directed by Finland's own Renny Harlin. So, uh, Paul and I will be back to uh, to uh, talk about that, and I'll listen in to see if uh, this buddy cop formula in 2016 is um, comes uh, recommended or not. So, uh, we'll be right back. And welcome back in the second review of this Dynasty Report. And let's see if um, Paul can uh, generate some interest Talk in me talking of this uh, other movie from 2016. And it's one of Jackie Chan's uh, latest uh, movies. And it's called Skip Trace from 2016. So, Paul, what is this buddy cop formula about? Stock plot or not? So, um, the floor is yours. So, yes. Uh, stock plot, kind of. Yeah, it's a pretty good way to describe the film it is a pretty much standard buddy comedy road trip-esque kind of thing clash clash of cultures a la uh rush hour three uh kind of so if if you're familiar with that kind of mode of storytelling uh you'll find a lot that's familiar here if you liked that kind of mode of storytelling you'll probably like this film uh this is a solid jackie chan film it's got 
good quality in terms of the production design, in terms of some of the action set pieces. Uh, the downside is that it still feels like it's a been-there-done-that kind of movie. And uh, there's a twist that they throw in, which kind of doesn't make sense, but doesn't really make the film unwatchable. Well, uh, as one might expect, there's a Hong Kong detective, and it's played by Jackie Chan. <laughs> Except his name is not Jackie, it's Benny this time. He is Benny Chan. And he has been tracking down this crime lord of the underworld known as the Matador. And he believes that this person is actually a business tycoon named Victor Wong, uh, played by actor Winston Chow. He's had a sort of a vendetta at, in trying to capture this guy for over a decade because he thinks this guy is responsible for the death of his partner, Jung, played by none other than, you said it, Eric Tsang. Uh, right off the bat, you've got two names from Hong Kong cinema involved in this that should you know perk your ears up uh make it a little bit worth your time what do you mean two names why why are you excluding uh uh mw if you well will. i I'm, I'm i'm building to that I'm okay building to that. Fair, enough, fair enough um so we, what we end up getting here starts off feeling like a straight up hong kong film and then we kind of throw the international element in or the co-production element in because you have uh young's daughter uh, played by fan bing bing and she gets a little bit of trouble. Now, this is uh, years later after her father's death. And uh, Jackie's character, Benny, is taken on her as sort of her in a godfatherly role. She gets into a bit of trouble with this um, crime syndicate that's tied to Victor Wong and the Matador. And she runs across a sort of gambler slash con man in the form of Connor Watts, played by none other than Johnny Knoxville. He's wanted by the Russian Mafia for reasons and he so he's on the run uh, for from them and, for and, and because reasons. i like that <laughs> yeah then he runs he crosses paths with samantha and something else ensues and so now he's on the run not only from the russian mafia but from this uh this matador sort of underground triad group and of course because he's gotten samantha all caught up in this mess that brings him to the attention of jackie chan's character benny chan who then seeks to bring him in to find out, you know, what the deal is. Yeah, it's it's basically, it's a film that bounces around. Got multiple, you know, this is indicative of a high production Jackie Chan movie. It's got multiple locations across the world. It's got uh, a cast of lots of people, but throwing back some love to some Hong Kong originals. So as we said, uh, Eric Tsang, uh, Winston Chow, Michael Wong mm -hmm. as his boss. Okay, and doing some angry acting, so that's always a plus. <laughs> I have my own car. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. And uh, as well as people, you know, from uh, I'm I'm sure uh, some youngsters from Jackie Chan's stunt team that if you follow the stunt teams, you'll recognize. But even a quick pop up by none other than Richard M. So you know, old fans will be very pleased to see him. He has a a short cameo that's uh, somewhat humorous as well. Uh, he doesn't get naked, okay? So I know that was kind of his thing when he was younger, but he's he's kind of resigned himself to the more grandfatherly role. Hey, hey, Richard would be a great fit for the Lang Kwai Fong movies, but because that <laughs> famous sequence, there are in uh, Winners of Sinners, there are strategically placed things to avoid uh, Richard showing his PPP uh, yes. on screen. So casting for Lang Kwai Fong for like the older years. You know, long before we had Austin Powers, we had uh, Richard mm, doing his thing. So. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So, you know, if you're a fan of Hong Kong cinema, there's a lot here to look forward to and, and, and to sort of glean little 
pieces that will make you smile, make you happy. And, and just based on that alone, uh, I would recommend this film. Again, as I said, it still feels like um, a been there, done that movie. Well, 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 that is a question, though, because it, it is set. Is it largely set in China before I ask my question? No, it bounces around. It starts out in Hong Kong. It moves to Macau, spends some time there. Um, there's this whole opening sequence that's actually shot in Tai O, um, you know, that the sort of uh, far west island um, on Lantau Island community that, uh, that's on the shore and they've got houses on stilts. You know, you see these in, in Hong Kong. They see this as a location in Hong Kong movies occasionally. So there's a sort of extended sequence in the opening that's very indicative of something that, you know, you would expect Jackie to do. Except Jackie here, you know, he's an older Jackie. Some of the fight scenes, some of the choreography are indicative of that. It's not quite as frenetic as the Jackie of, say, a rumble in the Bronx or, you know, some of the earlier work where he was really flexing himself creatively and really going for broke in terms of attempting to do new things. That doesn't, again, make this a, a bad film in any way, shape or form. And for people who aren't very familiar with Jackie Chan, they're going to see stuff here that they're going to really like and say, wow, that's, you know, some some great action. Are they wise, therefore wise with the action choices and the choreography based on the fact that, well, we got an older action performer. Let's craft something ba based on that. I wouldn't go as far as saying it feels safe, right? It's not it's not like they're babying, they're 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 babying or Jackie's babying stuff. They do have outtakes at the end and you do see some things don't always go right. But again, you know, it's at a certain point he's pulling back a little bit, I would say, and, and trying to let the environment, you know, they have this whole sort of long fight sequence in, in the warehouse, in this packing warehouse. And there's some creativity there, but he's moving it more towards the sort of the, the stunt people mm -hmm. and letting them shine a little bit more, kind of in the same way that he did in Little Big Soldier, I would say. Um, so it's nice. It's nice to see him. He's still got a couple Jackie esque things that are, resonate there. That kind of just making you go, "Come on, Jackie!" Uh, don't tell me he falls in love with someone thirty years younger in this one. Uh, okay, I won't tell you that because I've always that. <laughs> disliked that. Even in Rumble in the Bronx, like him and Francois Yip, get, you know, getting romantically involved. One, it's not a very well developed romance, but. Why turn to her and not Anita Moy instead? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that would make sense. I'll just say I won't tell you that, okay. but that doesn't mean it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. it! It's not it's not a major focus of things to be sure, but it's still something that goes ah okay. There's another scene where he fights with um, Eva Torres, who plays sort of the Russian enforcer Dasha. Um, I guess fans of wrestling will know her. Uh, she's uh, got a bit of a background in like WrestleMania or, or professional wrestling. We we talked about comparatively the girls in the uh, special female forces doing action. Eva Torres, okay, she could fulfill the Amy Yip role, and kind of does in this movie. But she kicks butt. Uh, she is a, she is a, she is a lady who knows at how action and looks good doing it uh, on screen. Uh, they use her very effectively but also very humorously in, in a couple in a couple sequences. But Jackie faces off with her a couple times, and it's the whole, oh, it's not honorable hit girls, it's not honorable hit girls kind of thing that we've seen him kind of do as his Mr. Nice Guy shtick in, in some other stuff. 
Uh, and it plays to fine effect here. But again, it's part of that whole thing that, yeah, we've seen you do this before, Jackie. So, Well, well, well it brings back my uh, original question. The reason I asked if it's set in China uh, largely is because I believe this was a quite a major hit in China. But what I was getting at uh, is that do you think the the box office success that it had in China in particular, do you think this is po- potentially a fairly new genre for Chinese audiences, the buddy cop action formula? Do you have any take on that? Perhaps. I mean, I'm sure that audiences will at some point have seen the Rush Hour movies and the Shanghai Noon films, but perhaps the sort of American cultural aspects are something that doesn't appeal to them too much. Here, because it's taking place primarily in Chinese territories with Hong Kong, Macau, then Mongolia, although I don't know if it was supposed to be Mongolia proper or China's the China province of Inner Mongolia, where they were actually filming, but they spend considerable time there. Uh, there's a sequence where Jackie ends up having to wrestle this huge Mongolian wrestler, right? So it's, a, you know, we've seen Jackie do the size difference kind of fights before. Uh, but, you know, it's still fun. It's interesting. It's shot very well. The cinematography looks very good. Again, high production values, lots of attention to detail. Um, and then, of course, you've got Johnny Knoxville thrown into the mix. Is he any draw in your eyes as a movie star? And how's the chemistry with uh, with Jackie? Well, I need to go on record here. I'm not a Johnny Knoxville fan myself. He is not somebody I, I was never a fan of the vehicles he started with, the Jackass series that made him famous. I've liked him in a couple things. I thought he was okay in Arnold's movie, um, The Last Stand. And I thought he was very funny in Bad Grandpa, which was a film that I would never have watched, except my dad said, here, sit down. You have to watch. Sit down and shut up. Watch it. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm like, Dad, I'm not. I don't don't like the jackass stuff. He says, no, no, you've got to watch this. And I have to admit, Bad Grandpa made me in my life. My wife, I mean, we were just cracking up. And, and that was not something I thought I would find very funny. And it's... In the series, he's actually very good. Uh, when he and, he and Spike Jones did that bit together in the series more than anything. Did they? Yeah, I think be, Spike, Spike Jones was working on Jackass behind the scenes. But I think at least one time they made up him as well. And mm. and, and Johnny was always felt a little bit inspired as that character in the tv series and i I never saw the movie that that sort of jackass style slash regular movie that bad grandpa was but uh, it's um it intrigued me that they took that character and ran with it uh, for a movie rather than jackass 5 or whatever i mean that kind of stuff i always just think is ah you know it's pranking and and that kind of stuff and and doing bodily harm i mean it's it's led to sort of the youtube culture we have today and people trying to get their five minutes of fame. Um, and it's great that it worked out for him and some other people. And, and by extension, I mean, we take it back to Hong Kong. They did a Hong Kong spinoff for MTV Asia called um, Chi Scene, right? Which featured Daniel Wu and some others. I, th- I think, I think, uh, I think Mike Leader actually might've been involved with that. I remember it. Uh, I remember that uh, title because I know that it's one of the few words in Cantonese I know. So, yeah. I know what that's so about. you know, it, it, it did have a cultural effect that went international, although the Chisin, I think they were far tamer because they had to be because of Asia. Uh, they were far tamer than I think the Jackass guys right. ever were, were trying for. But anyway, long story short, Johnny Knoxville's never been a big draw for me here. I will say that 
by the end of this film, I was kind of charmed by his character. It's it's a very sort of typical con man-esque kind of guy, but a guy who's not a bad guy overall, and him and Jackie Chan bonding over the course of their trip. It makes for some, you know, okay humor at times. There's a couple gags. So, for example, Jackie Chan, who's known as a crooner, <laughs> at least in Asia, um, and he's probably perhaps known as not a great singer when he tries to sing English songs, but he starts out by singing uh, at this point when they're in Mongolia, the Adele song Rolling in the Deep, which is then, you know, picked up by this Mongolian tribe and everybody sings it together. So Adele is, you know, known so so internationally famous that even Mongolian nomads can can sing her song. Uh, but then as the counterpoint to that joke, uh, they get Johnny Knoxville to sing the song Ming Ming Bye Bye Wodishing which is a famous Jackie Chan romantic ballad. He's got multiple recordings of, of singing this. And so it's, it's probably something that nobody in the United States, if they're sitting down to watch this film, is going to get. But fans of Jackie Chan who've heard him sing and have heard, probably heard him sing this song will find it quite funny to hear Johnny Knoxville kind of belting out this Mandarin ballad. And judging by how you talked about it, right now and that you found it at the very least amusing it doesn't sound like the movie is forcing a lot of like audience pleasing elements in there and it feeling rather desperate and and uh, facepalm inducing the way they're trying it sounds like they're doing an okay job to, to reference stuff and get an amusing effect out of it yeah i think so again i believe part of the reason why this might have been so well received in china is because it's geographically focused primarily within Asia, um, rather than the Old West in the United States or Paris or, you know, wherever the Shanghai Nights and Rush Hour films ended up going. Uh, this is a bit more internalized. So by seeing Jackie uh, take this goofy guy from, this goofy actor from the U.S. on a road trip, you know, in, uh, in a Mongolian cart and uh, down the river, uh, on a raft made out of blown up hog skin. It's, um, you know, th that kind of stuff. I think the audience, the, the mainland audience is going to be very entertained by. What do you think in terms of, um, because it wasn't a purely US production, do you think the cultural jokes are, I'm, I'm judging a little bit now, but uh, let, let, hear me out. Do you think the cultural jokes, because I assume there are some, being an American is in there and he's going to react two things in a humorous way. Do, do, do you think those jokes, if they are present, uh, is better than maybe a, a U.S. movie would, um, the way a U.S. movie will ta would tackle those? Like, um, if you know what I mean, like in, even in Rush Hour, the Rush Hour movie, sometimes the, the jokes are based on a stereotype and it's sometimes a little bit too uh, lame for my taste. Yeah, there's, I, I mean, this is fairly politically correct throughout. The, I mean, there is a sequence where Johnny Knoxville really overplays being an ugly American because the scene kind of requires it. And, you know, that might be seen as as humorous by some. I'm, I'm guessing the script was primarily written with um, an English audience in mind because everybody speaks English in the film. And for some people that works great, you know, like Michael Wong, angry acting in English. Jackie does fine. Fan Bing Bing, I couldn't tell. Uh, it looks like she's speaking English, but I think they dubbed her. Uh, Eric Zhang, he has some Cantonese dialogue early on, but then he speaks some English later. 
I think he might have been dubbed too. I've heard him speak English rather well, though. I, I don't, you know the place I remember hearing him speak English? Uh, did, did, this is sort of deep cuts, but I think you might remember it. Uh, one of the teaser trailers for Golden Chicken has mm. uh, him on the phone speaking English. Uh, they did a yeah. few variations of the teaser trailer, and he's ordering something on the phone, whether it's food or he's ordering a prostitute. But I remember hearing horse-sounding Eric Tsang speaking English rather fluently or well. So, And he did, he did a Wayne Wang film way back in the day, I think, called Eat a Bowl of Tea. And he had a role in that. And I think he was speaking English in that, if memory serves. So, yeah, I mean, he can do it. And I'm sure that Fan Bingbing and, and, and other actresses, we were talking about this in terms of the movie The Great Wall, telling, I was having a discussion with Kevin about, was Andy Lau dubbed or not? Because he's speaking English in some parts of the movie. And it sounded like it was sync sound, but Kevin is fairly certain that it was post-dubbed, so they did a really good job. I was surprised by that because I saw it at the cinema just recently, and uh, it's definitely Andy's voice, but I was totally convinced that it was live sound, and uh, maybe it does make sense to dub it because maybe Andy would stumble a little bit when performing live on the set, but could nail it in a well-produced dubbing session and indeed they did yeah, so um that made me very happy to hear because it's sometimes andy has these expos- expository passages of dialogue that that they settle him with but uh it was rather rather pleasing to hear isn't she on the international scene though so i mean she she's competent in english at the very least right i would think so i would think so yeah but you know this is a this is a, a weird thing there and we've talked about before issues of sort of the post-dub where a lot of times they will just, you know, post-dub somebody who doesn't need to be post-dubbed. Even like there are cases of of China films. And I think it was Michael Wong or Russell Wong, maybe Russell Wong in uh, what was the Andy Lau and uh, Gong Li movie? Yeah, uh, well, it was there was a remake of uh, when, What Women Want. Yeah, it was a remake of yeah. that, but I don't remember the, 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 the title. I think Russell Wong was in that in a cameo, if memory serves, but they ended up dubbing him. And I'm like, really? You're going to dub Russell Wong? That, like, they dubbed over him speaking English. And it's just like, what? You know, it, it, so sometimes weird decisions are made. And, you know, it might be that the sound didn't come out great or they weren't thinking at the time or, you know, anything's possible. Um, but I always think it's great to let the actor act or actress, as it were. You know, if they, if they can speak English, let them act in English, you know, that that's who you hired to do the role. But for the most part, the sound quality is is very good throughout. And Richard, mm, as I mentioned, no dubbing for him. <laughs> he's great. And you shouldn't because his English is wonderful and he's yeah. worked worked internationally throughout the years uh, and things like that. Uh, I'm sure you have some notes, uh, but uh, let's uh, talk um, the director a little bit, uh, Rennie Harlan. Which he probably scored his biggest hits in years, and I'm not trying to be crappy towards him, but you know his 90s was stronger than his post millennium, and certainly he isn't as big of a A list director for action as he used to be. But you know we all go through phases, of course, and he, he's a working director. But uh, obviously the the favorites of probably many lie in his um, 90s filmography. Say say what you will about the Die Hard sequel, but I think it's a fun film. Uh, cliffhanger, long kiss, good night, uh, deep blue sea. I have an affection for, even though it, it was so funny at the time. 
with uh, Rennie there in the promotional uh, material for the film. I dare you to try and differentiate between reality and our CG shocks. They're so convincing. And when you look back on Deep Blue Sea now, or even then, like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Realistic. Still fun films. Still some cool, gory moments. But, like, the big super uh, reveal moment in the middle of the film that you don't expect in Deep Blue Sea looks just super pathetic uh, nowadays. Uh, Having said all that, I mean, I think he reached a point where he scored hits, and when he didn't score hit making a big budget movie that's when a sort of descent happened and uh, you can probably point towards Cuffroad Island for something like that. Uh, I mean he worked uh, post post Cuffroad Island of course but I think his um, slowly but surely his uh, A-list status was uh, being reduced but still a working director and uh, haven't seen much recent efforts. I think the last one I saw was his uh, found footage movie Devil's Pass which was okay up until the ending. I didn't think... The ending was a little bit too big for my taste. Otherwise, it was a decent little found footage movie. But um, pro- uh, probably, yeah, this Skip Trace is one of his biggest hits in um, in years when all is said and done. Um, so, so yeah, all um, a bearable director, of course, and uh, some 90s favorites for me. Uh, any personal notes on uh, having viewed Rennie Harlan movies, whether you sort them out or not, even like this? Well, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, coming off of probably my favorite of the series, 3, uh, Dream Warriors, uh, was a must-see. And he got nominated, I think, a Saturn Award for that. Um, but then he follows it up a year later, or year, a couple years later, with the Ford Fairlane movie. I remember that being fun, but I saw that in like 1994. So it's, um, I, I just remember it being fun because Robert Englund was in it and uh, I sort of just enjoyed myself because I liked Robert Englund. But may, maybe that plays horrid and horribly nowadays. You know, I need to go back and watch Cutthroat Island because he gets a lot of guff for that. And I, I like pirate swashbuckler movies. And I remember coming out of the cinema going, eh? And so, especially in in an era where anytime, you know, Johnny Depp's on screen, it's likely he's playing Captain Jack Sparrow again. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, he certainly wasn't. um, Pirate movies came into their own later on. But, uh, you know, as with anything that flops and everybody points uh, fingers at whose fault it is, you you sometimes rarely hear people discuss the movie quality um, because it just comes fashionable to take a dump on the movie, but Cuffroat Island might have been an, a, quite an excellent adventure, but it simply wasn't audience uh, an audience favorite at the time, and quite uh, quite distinctly flopped, I remember. As you look over his filmography, though, I mean, he's got, what, one, two, three, four, five nominations for Worst Director at the uh, Raspberry Awards, so at least he's consistent. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they like me, sort of. He, he... He knows he knows what he's what he's doing and, and he he keeps working for sure. Um, I haven't seen it was. I remember my dad mentioning it when it, I think it popped up somewhere on um, maybe Netflix or somewhere else. Uh, his last film prior to this, which was uh, Legend of Hercules, uh, which was also gave him a nomination for worst director, and have not watched that one. I think that was coming out around the time of the uh, Hercules film that was done by The Rock. There, there are always things like that that happen, you know, where like there'll be this big celebrity superstar production and somebody else has got this smaller film that's kind of about the same thing or being pushed at the same time to try and, you know, build on the on the, the intellectual property revenue of it and, and things like that. So uh, I can't really say, I mean, as I look at his list of the last film, the last film that I actually saw from him, 
Uh, I don't think I saw Mine Hunters. Uh, would have been Cutthroat Island as a fact. I, I've seen part of Long Kiss Goodnight, but I haven't seen the whole thing. Pretty, pretty solid stuff. I mean, that was a, a working relationship um, on and off screen uh, because he was. Did they ever marry Gina Davis? I, I know they were involved. But I'm not sure they were. They were ever husband and wife but um, that was certainly the case for at least two movies and, and I forgot to mention Prison which is his first American movie a low budget horror movie uh, mm. set in prison super fun uh, actually well, probably one of my favorites um, before he took on the big budget ones with the action stars at the time but uh, Prison is a, an underrated and fun little cult classic but you know is there any sign of him making a mark here or it's a workman like sort of uh, make the action movie and don't intrude too much with your stylistic flourishes in, in the skip trace. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is pretty much a Jackie Chan vehicle. Uh, he's the action director for the film. He's the producer for the film. And so I'm guessing that, you know, Rennie was maybe just a safe guy to bring on to allow Jackie to do the work he wanted to do um, rather than bringing in somebody who maybe had a bit more of a name and a bit more clout that he might have a more difficult time working with. Again, this is just speculation on my part. All of the elements of Jackie Chan cinema are there, as I said. The world hopping, the kind of humor, the kind of characterization he's going for, the the, the stunt work. But at the same time, it is a very good-looking production. Um, I think, you know, it's fairly tight. It's fairly entertaining. It's not going to be a waste of time if you like Jackie Chan um, to sit down and give this film a go. The one thing that I would say that is a bit that doesn't really work for me overall. Well, there are two things. One is a technical aspect. There's a scene where they're being chased and they have to escape on a, uh, a zip line. And in China, I mean, they have lots of mountains and they have lots of rivers and there have actually been a couple of documentaries out there about, you know, people who actually have to traverse a river by a zip line because there's no bridge. So this is this is a thing that exists. It's not common, but there are areas that are still undeveloped where people use these zip lines. This zip line in particular is like really high. I mean, the ones I've seen are not quite this high uh, above the, the water. This is like Grand Canyon level. And so they end up having to zip line across together him and Johnny Knoxville and it's all green screened and it just it doesn't look very good you can tell it's an obvious green screen effect it doesn't fit really with the look and the feel and the cinematography of, of the rest of the film so that was one spot in the film where I think technically it just didn't hold up very well and they could have perhaps maybe done away with it or in the old days young Jackie this would have been a stunt that he did for real, they would have set up a zip line somewhere and he would have been out there hanging uh, instead of hanging in front of a green screen. But, you know, we understand he's older, can't do the stuff that he maybe once did as a spryly young lad. And so, you know, there's technology there to help compensate. Sometimes the technology works, sometimes it doesn't. In this case, didn't really work too well. The other thing that really hand stands out as not working so well in the film is a narrative aspect. And that's the twist they kind of throw in at the end, which you will kind of see coming. I think most fan, most Hong Kong cinema fans will kind of put two and two together and go, okay, yeah, I know what's coming next. And you'd be right. I won't spoil it here, but some of the things that end up happening, some of the way certain characters are treated uh, as a result of this twist, it 
doesn't kind of make sense in the grand scheme of things. But overall, it's a Jackie Chan film, so you probably won't care. You don't want to read too deeply into it. And hey, it's got all these Hong Kong people in it, plus Johnny Knoxville. And it's a fairly good time. Jackie does so many movies and sometimes they don't look very appealing on paper. It seems like it's rehashed stuff. And I freely admit that I didn't really, when looking at the trailer, get this vibe of, oh my God, this is going to open doors artistically for Jackie. And maybe it's because I'm I'm more a fan of when Jackie the actor, the series actor, makes a stand again. And I always enjoy when he does. You know, Little Big Soldier, even the Police Story 2013 movie. I, I enjoyed because of that. But uh, it, it's good to hear that you can still do an age-old formula. And if you provide, try and like strike up chemistry and fun, then there's nothing wrong with uh, doing something that was done in 1998 or 1987 or or that Jackie had done already. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that was ever bad for him. I like the first Rush Hour movie. I'm a great fan of the Shanghai Noon and Nights movies because I think that pairing, as odd as it seems, uh, Jackie Chan and Owen Wilson, really um, was memorable for me. So it, it can absolutely work. Um, and uh, so, so, so yeah, eventually going to give this a go, I think, because it sounds like undemanding viewing. And Jackie doesn't seem to slow down and he varies up his projects. There seems to be artistic projects in the works. He's doing a movie with Pierce Brosnan that's released later in 2017 called The Foreigner, which might be more focused on acting, therefore. And uh, this mix and match might not be so bad if if the quality is at the level that Skip Trace seems seems to be because you don't want Jackie to retrace his 80 steps only because that would seem desperate I think so um, to mix and match artistic projects with more light and uh, commercial projects maybe not a bad thing and uh, if he can keep his little trap shut uh, officially and when out and about and not speak of politics then maybe we'll like him a little bit more (laughs) As a person, because uh, he likes to, he is outspoken, if you, if you know what I mean, Paul. And it's not always pretty, what he says, um, depending on uh, the opinions you have. You know, I've come to the this point where I think that uh, uh, Jackie's just being a salesman more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever he's given a microphone, he's trying to sell to the audience that's in front of him. Right. When you grow up in the entertainment industry, I think that becomes kind of par for the course for a lot of people. So, you know, that that is what it is. It it, it really it, some of the stuff he was saying before really bothered me and, and turned me off for a while. And I've kind of tried to put that aside and just approach his films on a case by case basis. Yeah. And that's hard for some people to do now because of that, you know, and uh, there, there are other actors who've come out on sort of the other side of things. People like Anthony Wong, Wong Chao Sang and others. He's been doing it for decades, you know. He, he he's he's kept he's kept his mouth open for decades. But I always liked Anthony's take on things because you know Anthony has never viewed himself as a movie star anyway. So he he's happy to just say whatever uh, when work is for for ma- making a living and supporting his family, and uh, when work is what it is quality wise. He's always been you know vocal about that. In the scope of the entirety of our Dynasty Report today, we have two films. Uh, each which are kind of doing the same thing, right? They're building on or they're they're presenting stuff we've seen before. This one has the advantage of having the Jackie Chan name and, and a larger budget and is a bit better 
in terms of the overall package, in terms of uh, being entertaining. So uh, you can take your pick, folks, and uh, decide which one's up your alley or both, and uh, tell us, you know, what you think. Right back to us. Let us know. Cool. Uh, well, as for availability, Skip Trace is available on DVD and Blu-ray in the U.S. and as well as in a few select Netflix regions, such as the U.S., U.K., Canada, Ireland, and France. It sort of surprised me because I thought, but I don't know the intricate workings of Netflix acquisitions because the, this was picked up by Netflix to sort of be part of their catalog where they place their banner on the movie. So I thought this would have a global rollout. But in this case it doesn't and I'm sure there's reasons for that. But I, I'm, I'm merely saying that because I'm used to when something is a Netflix original series or a Netflix original movie. In my experiences so far that has meant close to or a full global rollout in the case of skip trades as things stand now at the time of recording it isn't so currently i for instance can't see it and uh, nowadays you can't vpn your way uh, to other ne- regions of uh, netflix uh, at least i can't so um, have you ha- had that experience where something is you know it is a netflix thing but it isn't available globally so is that more common than i than i know of yeah i mean this is a this is an issue when I was back in Hong Kong, they had released the first season of the new Voltron series, Voltron Legendary Defender, which I, as an animation fan, I was very anxious to see. And this was under their label, not something that, you know, this was something that they themselves had, had ordered and produced, apparently. And as the sort of the sole distributor, I thought, okay, this is going to be available to me. And it wasn't. And I was kind of ticked and I wrote them a letter and I posted on their Facebook page and they eventually got back to me and said, well, it's a, you know, basically it's a rights issue thing for whatever reason. And I remember talking with Kevin where they make, you know, they're still making different deals in terms of distribution based on the property when they buy it or when they produce it. So even though something is a Netflix original, it may not be a Netflix universal. Um, and that's unfortunate. And, and I hope that going forward, as they get more and more clout and they become more and more of a player on the big stage with Amazon and others, that they'll be able to make more deals that simply say Netflix across the board, you yeah. know, and not, not segregated into regions like they've been doing with media for decades, you know, DVDs and everything else um I, I don't know because this wasn't ordered by netflix they stepped in during distribution stage that might be the explanation that these are the markets currently that they negotiated instant streaming deals for um yeah uh, so, so yeah so i i was kind of thinking like i might have the time to get a watch in at the very least but no that's uh, i'm i'm locked out currently so that's it. I mean, obviously, there is a disc out there. So uh, you and then probably iTunes rental. I, I didn't check my local iTunes for a rental. That might be very well be the case that it's available on on that. And we also have our um, our local streaming um, service called uh, Via Play or Via Play. And um, that might have it, but, but I'm not signed up to that um, currently. So uh, that's where we're at. So thank you very much, Paul, for the breakdown of uh, the movie. Sans uh, Dr. David Lamb, it's a little bit empty in here, but uh, nonetheless very enjoyable to hear two uh, distinctly different opinions of movies that are trying out similar things. 
So let's uh, round this off, this uh, Dynasty report. Uh, far away from the Dynasty, but a report nonetheless. And uh, this has been Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. We are located on podcastonfire.com. Uh, plenty of shows on Hong Kong cinema, Japanese cinema, Korean cinema, sleazy cinema, and what have you. And we also do bonus episodes occasionally. Uh, write us in. What did you uh, did you watch? Skip Trace or Special Female Force? Uh, let us know your opinion. Podcast on Fire at googlemail.com. Join us over on social media by clicking the various buttons at the top of our website leading to our Facebook presence, our Twitter presence. You can subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking that very button. And also check us out on Stitcher Radio if you want to stream our shows either on their website or the applications available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. And I write about a variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies new and old on SoGoodReviews.com. I video review every now and again. Uh, thankfully, my mug is not on camera, at least not yet. Uh, I merely do spoken audio on SleazyKVideo.com. And my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. Paul, my friend, plug, 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 ESWS, my friend. What's that about? It's uh, East Screen, West Screen, where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. Uh, usually a, bit of, a little bit of news before our reviews. If that interests you, check us out over at Kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T dot com. It comes hi- highly recommended. I'm a, I'm, a wee, I'm, I'm a regular listener as soon as the episode drops. So uh, you're doing a good good job over there of uh, getting us up to speed with the news and what have you. So well done, as always, my friend. Thank you indeed. Uh, okay, guys, we are done for this Dynasty Report. Hope you enjoyed, and uh, we'll see you next time. And I've been Kennedy, and with me was my good friend Paul Fox. So sign us out and sign us off, buddy. Bye-bye. <laughs>